Well, good morning, New Life Manitou. How you doing this morning? Yeah. All right, let's pray as we begin. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, we thank you that you are here in this place, that you have defeated death, and that you are at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning the universe, and you will put your enemies under your feet, including that last one of death. And then you'll hand over the kingdom to the Father, and the Father will be all in all, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And so, thank you that you love us. Oh, a kingdom would be really scary if the monarch wasn't love like you. We're grateful that you love us, that you're here, and that you're drawing us into your good future. We ask that this morning you would draw us a little more into it um, by the power of your spirit. And so we ask as best we know how, we take a deep breath and we're present here. And we say, come and speak, Lord, for your children are listening. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. 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 Uh, Today, if you didn't know, we're singing Joy to the World. So you may have gotten a clue that today is the first um, Sunday of Advent. And if you did not, I did not grow up with a church calendar. I grew up in a tradition that did not follow the church calendar. But if you did not know, if you're new to it, Advent is not Christmas. Advent's not Christmas. It's not Christmas starting early. Advent is actually the season of aching for God to arrive. That's, uh, this, that is what we're doing during the, like, we, Advent is when we look around and we recognize things are not the way that they should be. <laughs> I don't have to tell you, do I? We look at the headlines, we uh, watch jury verdicts coming, we watch the, the borders of Ukraine, we hear the word Omicron. <laughs> and for some of us, we're just, if you don't know what Omicron is, bless you in your ignorance. You're about to find out. Uh, I'm afraid. Um, for some of us in our brokenness, like we don't have to look at headlines. We just like, we looked at the, at our Thanksgiving tables is what we looked at. We looked at uh, the struggles of those who were around our tables or the fact that people are missing from our tables or maybe, maybe just the fact this year that we didn't have a table to sit at. Um, we remember that the world is full of a whole lot of brokenness. And Advent is a season where we say, that's okay. It's okay to ache. That things aren't the way they should be yet. We, like, we feel that ache, we give permission for it as the church, and we remember that the future is good. <laughs> like, there's goodness coming in the future, not just brokenness. The world is broken, but Christmas is coming. Um, God is going to arrive. And so today, as we are uh, finishing up, our, we're going to finish up our series on the book of Ruth. I want to talk about uh, this brokenness just a little bit. I want to, here's where we're headed. I want to talk about an unexpected habit um, by which God makes us whole, 
is what I want to talk about this morning. An unexpected habit by which God makes us whole. It's counterintuitive. It's surprising. It's, we have uh, kids right now. Uh, our oldest is five. She'll be six in January. And uh, it's really counterintuitive when you're riding a bike. Do you remember this, learning to ride a bike? And it's so scary when you take like the, the stabilizers, the training wheels off, and you, you say, no, the counterintuitive thing is you're going to fall off unless you go. <laughs> like it's what I'm trying to convince her of right now. And it's so counterintuitive. It's like, I don't want to go. I'm going to, and it's like you end up falling over because you're not going. Um, I want to explore one of the most counterintuitive ways, one of the most surprising ways that God actually brings wholeness into this world of Advent, into this world where we're all aching for wholeness to arrive. Uh, It's a really counterintuitive way. And I think the book of Ruth uh, speaks a word to this. And uh, so just as a reminder, uh, the book of Ruth, in case you haven't been here, in case you haven't read Ruth recently, it tells the story of Naomi, is what it tells us. Naomi uh, is... uh, is someone, uh, her name means lovely, is what her name means. And lovely experiences brokenness after brokenness. The world of Advent is just crashing upon, she, like, upon her. It's famine and hunger and displacement from her home and the exile in a foreign land, the death of her husband, the death of her children. I mean, the, it's a really bad, bad beginning, isn't it? Um, to the point where by the end of chapter one, love Lovely says to all of us, to the, to, the, to the people, to the women of Bethlehem, but then to also to us, like, do not call me lovely anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter is what she asks to be. Drawing our attention to the significance of names here in the book of Ruth. She goes so far as to say that Yahweh has done evil to me. He has done ra'ah. He's done badness to me. Um, and then Lovely, if you didn't know, she was actually married to uh, a guy whose name is uh, uh, Eli Malek is his name. Um, his name means my God is king, and my God is king ends up dying. They have two children, Malon and Kilion, named Sickly and Dunfor. Um, they're, they're not on the scene very long. Um, they, they are returning to Bethlehem, to Bethlehem, to the house of bread in the middle of a famine. And then Naomi, lovely, is returning with friend, with Reut. That's what Ruth's name literally means. It means friend or refreshing as well. Um, And then you fast forward a couple of chapters and Ruth wrote, has caught the eye of Baaz, which means strong one. (laughs) And strong one, it just turns out that Baaz, strong one, is a close relative of my God is king, uh, Naomi's deceased husband. This was a very male-dominated culture and it um, it was very difficult for a woman to function in society without belonging to a man. And so social custom and Levitical law directed that male relatives, if you had a, like a brother or relative that died, someone needed to step in to care for the wife, the, the, the women here. And that was um, called a ga'al, is what this is called. I know I'm throwing the Hebrew at you today, but we got to, we got to. I'm not gonna do a nerd alert because the whole sermon's a nerd alert. <laughs> <laughs> older, tr- older translations would call the Gaal, would call it a kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer. Um, but the word literally just means 
Redeemer is all it means. It's someone who can leverage their strength to rescue the lives of those who are broken. It is a word that, it, you can go ahead and throw that slide up. It is a word that is used 104 times in the Hebrew scriptures, frequently of God, who is the ultimate strong one, by the way. Um, but this right here, you see, the, that one on the left is Leviticus right there, the 20 some odd chapters of Leviticus. But right there on the right hand side, that is the book of Ruth. The four chapters of the book of Ruth are hoarding all of the, most of the instances. One out of five of the instances of this word, ga'al. That's like a hundred candy bars given to a class of 39 students. And you go to like one of the smallest kids and it's like, he has 20 of them. It's like, what, what, your stomach is not that big, bro. Like you literally, what are you doing with all of those? Ruth is making a really big deal about a strong one who can rescue the broken, about a strong one who can leverage their strength and bring wholeness to a situation. And where we'd left off last week was Boaz, Boaz has promised Ruth, that someone is going to take care of her and Naomi. Someone is going to step in. Boaz is like a second cousin twice removed or something, but there's actually a first cousin who has the option, who really the responsibility falls on. And so here we're picking up the story. Boaz is checking in with that first cousin saying, hey, will you take care of Ruth? So uh, that's where we are today. Ruth chapter four, starting in verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, so-and-so. We'll come back to it. <laughs> turn aside, so-and-so. A lot of you, the translation originally said friend. Um, turn aside, so-and-so. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10, of, 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. They've got a quorum. And so a lot of translations use the word friend right here in verse one, but it's not, the, it's not what the Hebrew means. We've already said what the Hebrew for the word friend is. It's Ruth. <laughs> Ruth is the, the, what the Hebrew says here. It's our favorite, he, it's your favorite Hebrew word. You just didn't know it yet. It is Poloni Almoni. Is, is what is what the what, it, what the Hebrew is. It's the equivalent of, our, it sounds like it, doesn't it? Poloni Almoni. It's so and so. It's such and such. It's like, go to such a Polonia Ammonia place. Go to that, someone's going to meet you. Polonia Ammonia will meet you there. It's so-and-so will meet you there. It's, and so now you actually know how to say, um, how an Israelite would say in ancient Hebrew, I don't believe so-and-so. You would say, Polonia Ammonia is full of baloney. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I know. I know I'm here. This is... It's, Really significant. In a chapter chock full of names. This chapter is chock full of so many names. The book is. Um, Boaz certainly knew what the name of this fellow was, right? <laughs> we know that at verse 3, um, said, uh, he certainly knows what the name of this person is, but he doesn't get named. That's significant for the chapter. Then, verse 3, he said to the Redeemer, Naomi... 
Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, my God is king. Well, it's not actually clear right here whether uh, Naomi, for those nerds in the room that like, this is a nerd alert and you're like, for those uh, nerds in the room, it's not quite clear whether Naomi is selling the land right now or whether Naomi sold the land back then. The grammar actually lets it be either way. It's not clear whether... Either way, she's needing a relative to buy the land is the the point, Um, either now or buy it back so it can be in the family. Okay, verse four. So I thought I would tell you of it. You know, this land needs to be bought. Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. If you're gonna buy it back, buy it back. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And then he said, I'll do it, (laughs) I'll redeem it. And we all think, well, I'm so proud of Polonio Moni, oh, such and such. You know, he's willing to take care of the family. That's a great thing. Um, But then Boaz speaks up. The narrator has stopped calling uh, Ruth the Moabite. He's stopped calling Ruth the Moabite, but Boaz does it right here. He wants uh, Polonio Moni to know uh, all of the fine print that's coming with this. And so Boaz says, you know, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also will acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to per- uh, perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That's great that you want to buy the land, he's saying. And we, we all know how valuable land is right now, but imagine if it's like your grocery store too. We need food coming up from it. But you realize, of course, when you buy this land that there's a widow here, don't you, to be taken care of? And you'll need to marry her and have children with her to keep their family name going. You know, Ruth the Moabite. Verse six, then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair Impair, that's a weak word, isn't it? Lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So Poloni Almoni says, this matrimony will make me a jabroni. (laughs) Thank you. I'm done with that. But really, in all seriousness, it does sound like a Dr. Seuss book at this point, doesn't it? I found one, actually, in our house. Marvin K. Mooney, will you please go now? Do you guys know this is a classic one? I decided to, uh, we also found, I dug a little deeper, and I actually found another one. It's Poloni Almoni, will you please love now? It's what I, it's blowing the lesser known a Dr. Seuss books. Will you please love now so-and-so? Because seriously, bro, this woman needs your help. <laughs> like, and he replies with, this will impair my inheritance. I can't think of the wor- last time I used the word impair in a sentence. <laughs> Does anyone use this word? Like, actually, the ESV, the English Standard Version that we're reading from, can't think of the last time it used the word either because this is literally the only time they use this word. But the word gets translated all over the New Testament. It's almost always translated destroy. Like, that would destroy me. 
is what he's saying. I remember hearing this part of the story when I was little, uh, growing up in church or teenager or whatever, and I'm like a hopeless romantic, and the, and the book of Ruth um, is always framed in like really romantic terms. And Ruth, by the way, is universally depicted as young and beautiful and somehow conforming to every standard of beauty in the like, in the Western, in Western culture, modern Western culture. And I couldn't understand why in the world is Ruth the deal breaker? right? It's like, hey, you get this land, this valuable thing, and, and there's like a single lad, you know, and you got to marry this, you know, you got to marry Ruth. And uh, you can imagine, try to imagine though, the group of people that you like the least, that, that you think is destroying the country. You think it's destroying the, Ruth the progressive, you got to marry Ruth the progress. You got it, Ruth the conservative. Ruth who stands up for gun rights. Ruth who teaches critical race theory. Yes, you get the grand prize, but you also have to forever yoke yourself to Ruth fill in the blank. That's why it's a deal breaker here. And suddenly we start like to understand a little bit. This was a sweet deal when it was just like adding to my asset portfolio. But that girl, that girl makes things different. That, that girl is different. That girl's the problem. Moabites are the problem for crying out loud. We talked about it last week, but good gravy. Have you read Numbers 25? Moabite women seduce good, God-fearing men and end up destroying the country, end up destroying the nation. Ha, and you want me to marry one? Ha, fat chance. I'm not gonna do that. That would destroy everything that I love. Never mind that this young woman, this outsider, this different though she may appear, she actually embodies the very values that this country says that they champion. She embodies God's own loyal love, his hesed during this entire story. Boaz called her a, a Proverbs 31 woman, a woman of valor last chapter. But Poloni Almoni, he won't even take the time to peel off the easy labels and learn about this person. Uh, it's so crazy. We all talk and think a lot of times in stereotypes, but you have never met a stereotype. And you never will. You never will. It's just like, there are no stereotypes in the room right now. If you didn't know, and there are no stereotypes, walk out on the street. There are no stereotypes on the street of the streets of Manitou in Colorado Springs, in the like on our city council, in the governor's mansion. There is no stereotype that you can find. Even those talking heads on the news, even they have souls. I've been told they are people. <laughs> They're people. They're not stereotypes. There are no stereotypes. There are only people. Real, flawed, complicated, beautiful people. That's all there is. People that God loves. So learn about that person. Don't talk about them. Learn about them. Meet them. Like Poloni Almoni, like we discover that he is only in this for what he can get out of it. 
I've, uh, well, I've got more important things to do than actually listening to people and actually meeting people and actually having relationships and actually having my life stretched. I have more important things to do than, than loving people. There are more important things in life. Like what, Poloni Almoni? I can't tell you, but I'm not like, Associating with her, with that, that thing, that'll destroy me. That'll destroy us. Now Ruth is suddenly feeling very, very relevant. Can, can we just name something, by the way? No one should be translating Poloni Almoni friend as friend. No one. This is not what a friend sounds like. This is not what you're, if you have someone in your life that sounds like this, they are not a friend. They're not bad. The title character of this, of this book is literally named friend and she sounds nothing like this joker. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. And friend says all of this to someone that is socially, ethnically, religiously different than her. That's, that's why her name is friend. <laughs> this, that sounds like a friend. All right, let's read through the end of the story now. Verse seven. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning, and redeeming, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this is the matter of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. By the way, uh, you can make a note of that, Deuteronomy 25. The Levitical code actually allowed for public humiliation in this example, like for a relative who wouldn't take care of their family, like the letter of the law in Deuteronomy actually would allow Ruth or Naomi to take off this guy's shoe themselves and spit in his face. It's like all the drama of Jerry Springer combined with like the binding legality of Judge Judy, <laughs> you know, right there in Deuteronomy. Anyway, that's, that's the letter of the law, but it's more like the spirit of the law is what we see right here in Ruth, where a guy like takes the embarrassing thing off himself and symbolically passes the responsibility to someone else. Seems to be what's going on. Verse nine, then Boaz said to the, lead, to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to my God as king and all that belong to Dunfor and to Sickly, poor those guys, and also Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the fill in the blank, the widow of Sickly, poor Sickly. I have bought to to be my wife, Ruth the Moabite, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house Ruth, may you make this woman like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. These are like quintessential like matriarchs of Israel. May you act worthily in Hephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. In other words, may this outsider become like our most revered matriarchs. But notice what they add right here. This is so bizarre. And this is why the Bible's genius. Uh, Verse 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez. 
whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. We'll talk about that in just a second. So Boaz took Ra'uth, took friend, and she became his wife, and he went, he went into her, and Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the, woman, the women said to Naomi, blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law whom loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his, uh, his nurse, just the one who takes care of him, um, is what the word means. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Servant. They named him Servant, Oved, Obed. Um, he was the father of Jesse, the father of Abraham, or the father of David. And I remember thinking as an adult, I can remember thinking like even recently as an adult, thinking the book should just end right there. That feels like the perfect mic drop moment, doesn't it? Like it would have been a better ending if you just leave it right there with David. Because now in the final four verses of Ruth, you actually just have an avalanche of names. It's like the author wants to circle back to Perez for some reason, because she brings him up again. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ra'am. Ram followed a, uh, fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered <laughs> Salmon. Salmon? I was trying to think of a joke with it, but I guess the joke is your name is Salmon. (laughs) Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Oved. Oved fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And that's how the book ends. One more time, it circles back to Perez for some reason. The book ends, as you're probably aware, connecting the dots to King David. The author has told a story about an outsider who embodies the very qualities of God himself. It's like the author is saying, hey guys, our best king has the blood of a bad guy in him. David was part Moabite, if you didn't know. And if you can't, um, and if you can't remember um, the entire, uh, if you can't remember the, the entire lineage of God's people, throughout the entire Hebrew scriptures has been a mixed bag. It's been, I mean, you should really go back and read Genesis 38, that story of Tamar. We're not gonna read it here because it's rated R, but like how she gave birth to Perez that they keep bringing up. It is like all the drama of Jerry Springer combined. No, it's just like Jerry Springer. That's all it is. It's like Tamar too was an outsider. She is an outsider whose husband had died who needed protection of selfish men who would not, were not interested in caring for her. And do you remember what she did? I'll give you the, the PG version. Eventually, she takes things into her own hands in Genesis 38, and she dresses up like a prostitute, and she seduces her dead husband's dad, Judah, son of Jacob, and uh, she finally gets pregnant, and she finally finds the protection of the family because she's pregnant now. Like, we know nothing about Perez except the scandal of his birth. 
That's almost all we know about him. And that's exactly why the book of Ruth is lingering on it right here. Because despite what our favorite cable news channel may tell us, the world does not divide neatly up into good guys and bad guys. It doesn't. Even the best among us are touched by scandal. That's what Ruth is lingering on. We've all got Moabite blood. That's what it's saying. The question is whether we'll be honest enough about our own scandals so that we can care for though others in theirs. Will I be honest enough about my scandal to, so that I can care for someone else in theirs? Where Poloni Almoni says, verse six, he says, I cannot redeem it, that'll destroy me. But Oz, Boaz, strong one, says, I can carry her brokenness. It's not going to destroy me. You want to know why? You want to, if you're curious, it's actually very interesting. The first page of the New Testament actually opens with the family line of Jesus and includes a really interesting little detail right here. Um, about, it's Matthew chapter one. And Salmon, <laughs> Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Whoa, wait a second. It seems the reason why Boaz can embrace Ruth is because according to Matthew and the tradition he's following at least, Boaz's mother is a Canaanite prostitute from Joshua 2. Boaz, strong one it would seem, has come to peace with the brokenness in his own story. And that opens up the possibility of loving others in theirs. This person needs love. This person needs care. My, my mother was an outsider, and I'm not scared of a little scandal that comes, that comes from loving an outsider. And here comes the surprise. Here comes the unexpected habit of how we get to, we see wholeness entering the world. My confessing, my owning, my own brokenness is how the spirit ends up healing everyone. We need to unpack this, but it's when I confess my brokenness, it ends up healing more than me. It ends up healing everyone around me. I grew up in an evangelical church um, and it really never felt like a typical evangelical church, but it felt like altar calls every Sunday, but it felt like we never really talked about our sin. Don't get me wrong, we preached about sin. We preached about sin a lot. We preached against sin real hard, but usually not about our sin. <laughs> and it's only our sin, by the way, it's only our sin that we're invited to be preoccupied with, by the way. Um, log in our eye, not the speck in someone else's. Others' sin is the one that got preached about, though, a lot of times. Those people sin. The sin of those stereotypes over there, those are the ones, that's the sin that we would preach really hard against. But it never really felt like we talked about our sin, our brokenness, the places where we ourselves were like kind of fraying and coming undone. Um, and so I grew up in church and then I grew up as you do. And suddenly the nasty trick of hormones start racing through your body. And like you start growing and all every, the entire world changes. And I grew up in the era of uh, dial-up modems and I discovered, uh, <laughs> um, and I discovered that every curiosity I had about nudity uh, could be resolved with just a few clicks. Is what I discovered. And man, from eighth grade onward, I got sucked into it. And I got stuck 
in it through high school and college and early adulthood. And I never realized that what I was doing had almost nothing to do with sex and it had everything to do with self-medicating negative emotions in a profoundly unhealthy and destructive way. Um, and so, but I grew up in an environment where we don't talk about our sin. We talk, I spent years silently struggling, not only with crippling guilt and shame, but like just as destructive as like the act itself is the shame and the isolation and the aloneness and not being able to talk about my own brokenness. I desperately wanted to, but I suspected that I would be rejected. I would be reviled, that I would be demonized and left alone. And one of the truest bits of wisdom that it actually came from a faculty member at uh, my seminary, he told me, if someone will walk away from you because of some secret sin, they will walk away from you for some other reason. And that is one of the truest, like, heed that wisdom. <laughs> has taken regular conversations about my about my own brokenness with my wife Joy, with people who care about me to help me understand why I was in bondage and for deep healing and freedom to set in. But guys, especially over the last few years, I, I started learning to confess this, but I've watched the spirit race through my story when it hits the ears of other people. The spirit races through and it starts bringing healing to other people. People start saying, oh man, I thought I, thought I was alone. Oh man, I thought I was the only one. Oh man, there, there's hope. Can we please normalize talking about our sin? Our sin, our struggles, our brokenness. Not because we're trying to minimize it, but because we're trying to gain freedom from it. We've all got Moabite blood. We are all fraying at the edges in different ways. And the world does not get healed when the church denies our brokenness. The world is not healed. We are not healed. No one gets healed when, when we deny, oh no, there's no brokenness here. But everyone experiences forgiveness and healing as we confess our brokenness. It spills over into everyone as we confess our brokenness and as we embrace others in there. Polonia Almoni, he walks away from his responsibility, from like helping another in their hurting, from, from actually he walks away from getting a name in God's story because he thinks that the brokenness of someone else is going to destroy him. He doesn't realize that it's being honest about brokenness is how the spirit gives messianic, spirit-filled hope and blessing into the world and into the community. And we need reminded, reminding that Poloni Almoni is, isn't a name. It's just a, just a silhouette. It's just a stand-in, just a so-and-so. It could be anyone. It could be me. It could be me. We're all Poloni Almoni, but we're all invited to become strong, to become 
Baaz to become the strong one. And we can show up in the story. You can show up in your life and in the lives of those around you. Others can know your name. We are invited to confess our brokenness and to embrace others in theirs. And so the question before Polonia Almoni is, will you love now? Will you love now? Will you love those who are different? Will you love those who are impure, who seem, who di- those who disagree with your opinion on COVID policies, with those who disagree with your politics? Will, will I love the Moabite is the question. And will I please love now? This, after all, is the way that God treats us. That's the reason why we're coming to this table is because that's the reason the New Testament opens in, spot, opens in the way it does, spotlighting Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. The Messiah is part Moabite. God does not consider our brokenness, our sin, our impurity, our scandal something to run from. He doesn't. No, God literally enters the world through all the gossip of an unplanned pregnancy. It's what he does. God says, I will share the blood of an outsider. Our Lord's veins, they are filled with outsider blood. It's what the New Testament begins with. God sees all of us in our scandal in our sin, sickness, in our hurts, our habits, our hangups, in our vulnerability and brokenness. And God does not run from you. He does not run from me. Our God is the truest and greatest, Boaz. Boaz, he's the, he's the strong one. And he says, I will carry your brokenness even though it will destroy me. But there's nothing so broken that I can't fix it. There's nothing so scandalous that I will stay away from it. There is nothing so dead that I cannot resurrect it. It's going to be costly. It's going to take some time. But it's going to happen, our Lord says. God is going to arrive. It won't be Advent forever. Christmas is coming my brothers and sisters. And so I invite you to stand.